Hello, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers Festival. I hope you enjoy this conversation from our podcast series. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Sydney Writers' Festival. My name is Madison Connaughton, and I want to start today by acknowledging that we're meeting on Gadigal land in the Eora Nation, and extend my respects to the Gadigal people who have cared for this country since before time. Sovereignty was never ceded, and this always was and always will be Gadigal land. We are all wrong sometimes. We say the wrong thing, we tweet the wrong thing, we bet on the wrong parties who win the election, I was wrong, uh, thinking that I could be working until 2am covering the election um, and still be a coherent and charismatic host for this event, Um, but I'm going to do my best. (laughs) Uh, Those three little words, I was wrong, can be, for some people, nearly impossible to say. Luckily, we have four confessors, David Marr, Jane Caro, Marcia Langdon, and Paul McDermott, who have bravely um, sacrificed or presented themselves today for you. Uh, And they are here to stand up and say, I was wrong. Uh, Our first brave soul is Paul McDermott, a writer and performer, but primarily a scribbler. As a youngster, he attended the Canberra School of Art under the guidance of Peter Harrell. Am I saying that right? Peter Harrell. He's dead now. Paul has written for stage, screen, television, and continues to be a thorn in the side of ennui. He has recently returned to live touring with parts one and two of his pre-post-COVID show, Paul Plus One. This is all caps. I've seen the future and you're not in it. (laughs) Please welcome Paul McDermott. Oh, this is, uh, this is exciting. I can't contain my joy at this point uh, in the proceedings, and I'm just going to go straight into it. So when this first uh, topic came across my desk, I was wrong. I went back over the events and incidents of my life, my work, my relationships, family, friends, and I can say with complete honesty, I couldn't find one thing that I've done wrong. <laughs> uh, certainly nothing that was jailable. All the conflict in my life, the conflict in my life, uh, and you may find this true of yourselves, comes from other people. (laughs) It's that interaction. It's that interaction that causes friction. And according to other people, I'm a wrong'un. There's something wrong with me. I've been told that since I was a a small child. You're wrong in the head. Um, You need to have mood-controlling drugs. You're on some sort of spectrum. I've never been told this by doctors, just by people I used to consider friends. I just want to say to everyone, just because you think differently doesn't mean that you are wrong. It's just someone else's opinion, unless they all get together and and make it an intervention. Uh, (laughs) Now, I've been wrong, but in hindsight, my wrongness was always right, at least for me. Uh, I suppose in this way, in regards to this talk, I'm in the Morrison mould of apologists. Uh, Sure, I've made mistakes, but every single one of my mistakes has made the world an infinitely better place. So... I had an extraordinary night last night, absolutely joyous. There wasn't a moment. When those liberal shrills were melting on the ABC, I just felt so happy when they were facing an existential crisis, when they said, I think the words were, uh, the the teals have stolen our base. Fuck you, right? (laughs) 
And then I woke up this morning and was incredibly depressed. I looked at my, uh, my little talk and I thought, man, I've really got to rewrite this because uh, it's all over the place. And I realised that, OK, uh, for the first time, I, I could have been wrong. Um, <laughs> because, and I need to explain this to you, for the last four years, uh, I have been writing songs uh, about Scott Morrison. Uh, I dedicated myself to it. I worked on it tirelessly. Uh, and in case you're confused, these weren't songs of praise. Uh, if he'd done anything good, I would have written about it. Sadly, he did not. My intention was to catalogue in music and verse in chronological order as an historical document all the deceits, double talk, misogyny and sheer arrogant perversity of the Morrison government. Blessed, blessed my ass. I wanted to hold Morrison to account by attacking him in song, which I think we can all agree is one of the weakest forms of attack but can be one of the prettiest if you have a sweet voice. So, this was one song uh, that I wrote way back in 2016, I think, or 2017, maybe 2018. Uh, and it was originally titled Scomo No Homo, um, and it was a love song to Scott, because I thought if I could find love within myself for this divisive, evil man, then maybe that would spread through the community and we would find love uh, in the rest of the world. But sadly, uh, that didn't happen. Uh, but it gave me the idea that I would continue um, writing uh, these songs about Scott and, uh, and, and using it as, as a way of exposing uh, what was happening within the Liberal Party. Uh, so each song uh, form has six verses and a chorus. I'll give you an example of a verse, okay? This is the opening stanza of Scomo and Tamo. Uh, about Grace Tame and uh, what happened on Australia Day of this year. Uh, I don't have a guitar on me and I can't play it anyway, so I'm just going to do it a cappella. <laughs> Scomo and Grace Tame, Australia, it's a damn shame that a woman needs to contain her feelings and emotions or the look on her dial when she stands beside a pile of shit and can't crack a smile. <laughs> it's a corker. <laughs> so that's one stanza, right? Currently, there's 36 existing <laughs> Finnish songs, all with that same melody, right? So it's, it's just the same song, and I've just changed the lyrics. Each stanza contains 40 to 50 words, which gives you roughly 1,600 words. Now, as I said, there's six stanzas in every song, so 45 by 36 gives you 9,600 words. Then there's the chorus, which contains roughly 40 words, although it varies greatly. So let's just say uh, 1,440, right? Which means over 12,000 words so far. Um, there's another 15 half-finished songs. Uh, when they're finished, that'll be around 4,050, which takes us to around about 15,000 words. After last night, there could be at least, I reckon, 10 songs out of last night, easily, easily 10 songs, just dealing with the Morrison concession speech that turned pretty quickly into a victory speech. I mean, there's a lot in that, isn't there? And Jen, did anyone notice? Jen wearing teal? What the fuck was, a, what was going on there? And looking a lot like one of the extras from The Handmaid's Tale. So we're sitting, so we're now sitting on roughly 18,000 words. And this isn't prose, these are lyrics, right? Employing a simple A, B, C, B rhyme scan, and often because it's me, there are far too many words for the line. So the scansion is crazy. They are dense as a pound cake. One song with different lyrics detailing disagreeable elements uh, in the Morrison administration, each one. One song, one song lasts between three to five minutes. 
So let's say four minutes to be fair. That's 61 songs by four minutes, which rounds out to 244 minutes, divided by 60 gives you four hours. <laughs> That's four festival shows and an hour of a show, four hours, one song. Tedium was the object, right? And I've realized today that the only place that would be vaguely interested in this work, which has consumed four years of my life, is the Guinness Book of Records. <laughs> because it is as stupid as hammering a nail into your nose or rubbing death's head chilli on your genitals. This is my opus. And last night, because of you people, it all went belly up. I am probably the only person in Australia who would have benefited from Morrison being re-elected. In fact, my entire financial security and my performance work in the post-COVID years was dependent on him returning to power. Who's gonna to wanna to hear songs about Scott? now that he's gone. So it's a terrible situation I find myself in when I've worked for four years to achieve a goal and overnight that goal is achieved and then I realise this morning I've shot myself in the fucking foot. The gravy train's gone, what I desired more than anything else has happened and it's ruined my life. What folly, what an imbecile. I've probably spent more time with Scott Morrison than his family. Was it wrong to spend four years of my life in absolute pettiness? I've got to say, it's going to take me a while to really assess whether this was a big fucking mistake or was going to bring me a lot of joy. Uh, but each day that I did it and wrote these things, it did bring me a lot of joy. Just to prove that I'm not lying to you, I've brought one of the books along. There's four of these books now. Uh, and they all... Uh, right? ScoMo, no homo, the complete works. But look at that. It just goes on. ScoMo and the ukulele. Scomo and Robo, Scomo Misogyno, Scomo Six Schools, it doesn't stop. Scomo Misogyno, Nism is a no-go, so you went to Genmo. That's nice. <laughs> oh, wife of mine, tell me what stance I should take in this escalating scandal of this alleged rape. You can see that there's a lot of beauty here. Scomo just keeps lying, he does it without trying, he's all about denying. If you need empathy guidance regarding a rape, you're not a suitable person to be the head of state. I mean, it's, uh, it's powerful stuff. Scomo, the hero of the Hawkesbury. Scomo and Tamo. So I think I still have a bit of time, don't I? All right. Four years of my goddamn life down the tubes because we voted Labor. Incredibly upsetting. So my opus, which I've just thrown on the floor, stands in it as an historical document that documents an incredible waste of time. There's another small part of me that thinks maybe, just maybe, these songs were part of a subliminal message to the people of Australia that no one really heard, but it sparked a movement for change, and that ultimate creative self-destructive dream that I had reached its inevitable conclusion last night. I'm holding on to that because the golden goose is gone, the fattened calf has run, my inspiration has left the building. I hated this fella so much. It's actually like losing a loved one. <laughs> he was my reason for getting out of bed in the morning. <sighs> okay, so originally I was going to talk about something that's more personal and close uh, to me. Uh, and I wanted to bring a bit of joy here today because it has been a difficult, divisive time uh, for this country and for the Australian people. This is my fourth decade in comedy. Um, I started in the, in the mid-80s, and people have said, if I'd ended my career two decades ago, I, I, I would have been fondly remembered. I think... 
a couple of people agree out there. I think once or twice over the years, I may have said things, right, that caused a bit of offence. Uh, it, it was never my intention. Uh, the mid-80s, early 90s, 2001 to about 2010, they were a different time. We were a different society. We had different values. I'm not using that as an excuse, but the world has shifted so dramatically. We're trying to be an inclusive society now, a diverse society, a more open and accepting society. Is anyone keeping a count of how far I've gone? I mean, if you go four more minutes? Oh, shit, yeah, that's, that's easy. Uh, I think it's great that we want to be diverse and more inclusive. Uh, I want to be woke. I want to be so woke, I'm an insomniac. Uh, back in the 80s, uh, casual racism was just doing stand-up in a blazer. In those days, I did an impression of a person. It wouldn't be acceptable now uh, for comic effect, and I'm ashamed of myself. Uh, this fella had the gift of uh, uh, sibl uh, uh, sibilance. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, sibilance. Uh, and the fellow that I did an impression of uh, back in the 80s uh, that I couldn't do in this day and age was, of course, uh, the greatest Australian hero, Alan, Alan, Alan uh, uh, Seal. Um, uh, I love Alan Seal. He was a botanist, a horticulturalist, and a broadcaster. Uh, he had, uh, had sibilance, uh, which means when he spoke, his words just sung out. And as a kid, I loved him. Uh, and as, as an old man, I found myself quite prone to sibilance as, as well. Uh, I had the good fortune to work with Alan Seal in the Parliament House Rose Garden. Um, uh, that was the old Parliament House, of course, not the new Parliament House. Uh, I met Alan, it was uh, in the mid-70s, and of course that was uh, the old Parliament House. We hadn't even thought about the new Parliament House at that point. It was just uh, the old Parliament House with the Rose Garden. It was a beautiful building, of course. <laughs> uh, when I met Alan, he did have an infestation of aphids <laughs> in his left ear. Uh, as as we were pruning the roses together, Alan began singing and his voice was uh, sweet and high and the sibilance gave it an ethereal, almost ghostly tone. I suggested to Alan we began work on an album of songs uh, suitable to his unique voice. Uh, he scoffed, but we managed to get into the ABC studios in Dickerson and just after a few sessions, we completed the album and it was absolute silver. <laughs> Many... <laughs> Hard to tell you. <laughs> uh, so, uh, many of the old folk may remember Alan's uh, first and only album, uh, the Sen <clears throat> Many old folk here may remember Alan's uh, first and only album, the Sensational Sounds of Alan Seal, <laughs> celebrating the summer solstice. <laughs> of 77 in song. I can't remember uh, a lot of the tracks uh, from that sensational album. Oh, yes, I can. Uh, there, was, there was the marvellous uh, Sweet Sixteen, uh, Sex Express, uh, Seasons in the Sun, uh, the wonderful uh, Doctor and Medic's uh, song, Spirit in the Sky, uh, by Dire Straits, uh, Sultans of Swing, Summer Breeze by Seals and Croft. And of course, the beautiful and haunting Michael Jackson uh, song, Ben. <laughs> and lastly, but certainly by no means uh, least, the haunting 
powerful ballad by Phil Collins. <laughs> Takes me a while <laughs> to get to this one. Uh, a beautiful song by Phil Collins. Susudio, <laughs> don't fucking say it. <laughs> don't fucking ruin it for everyone. And now on to side two. <laughs> uh, that's it for me. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, when my lips had some elasticity, that was quite funny. Uh, I'll evacuate. I'll evacuate the, uh, the lectern. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. I. Uh... Didn't, I didn't think I actually heard you say I was wrong. <laughs> but a beautiful voice, a beautiful voice. Um, I have to mention, actually, the supporter of this session, which I missed at the start, um, which is Playfair Tan. Thank you for supporting this session, Playfair Tan. Our next speaker is Professor Marcia Langdon one of the most important voices for Indigenous Australia. As an anthropologist and geographer, she has made a significant contribution to government and non-government policy, as well as to Indigenous studies, native title and resource management, art and culture, women's rights, I could go on and on. Since 2000, she has held the Foundation Chair of Indigenous Studies at the University of Melbourne. Please welcome Professor Langdon. Thank you, Madison. Um, I acknowledge the Gadigal traditional owners and say hello to their elders past and present. And uh, what a thrill it is to be here with you all on this day, um, having a good laugh about the defeat of a group of monsters who've ruined our lives for almost a decade. Um, So I uh, have a list of issues that I was wrong about. Uh, in about 1989, I can't remember how old I was then, I was still in my 30s, I was asked to join the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody in the Northern Territory and find for the commissioners uh, the underlying issues leading to Aboriginal deaths in custody and I was uh, instructed to go to um, all of the communities. I don't think they realised that there were almost 80, not counting outstations. Uh, but I, I did with a wonderful team of people and we produced a report for the Royal Commission called Too Much Sorry Business. In all, the Royal Commission considered 99 deaths in custody that met its terms of reference. I went down to Adelaide and helped them to write the five-volume national report, accompanied by 99 um, reports on the deaths in custody and uh, volumes of appendices. To this day, apart from myself, the commissioners and some staff, I've never met anybody who's read the entire report or even has a sense of what the recommendations were. There were over 300 recommendations 
And the first one was that imprisonment be used as a last resort, as the most important intervention to prevent Aboriginal deaths in custody. Uh, most of the Royal Commission recommendations have not been implemented to this day. Um, in fact, I can't think of a one that has been implemented. You know, there were brief periods of time when some minor amendments were implemented by a forward-looking or progressive state government and then in the next election they were removed. So, for instance, one has become tremendously important and, and that is that when an Aboriginal person, um, or Torres Strait Islander for that matter, and actually we should extend it out to anybody with, you know, um, non-white features these days, um, that there be a, a notification to uh, a, an, an Aboriginal um, organisation so that the person arrested has an, an advocate and friend while they're in custody. That includes remand. Um, and of course, uh, I would add the first 48 hours of imprisonment uh, because that's when the suicides happen. And uh, so that's been briefly implemented from time to time, but, uh, and at the moment, uh, I, if it is in the policy of any jurisdiction, it is not implemented. And we've seen that in the last, I think, 11 deaths in custody. You know that we're up over 500 now since the Royal Commission, and there have been 11 since the start of the year. So um, the other one is that uh, every uh, detainee should have a medical assessment, um, and of course that's not implemented. And <clears throat> I could go on and on about the cases, but I don't have the time, but uh, you'll remember that in uh, uh, the local prison here in Sydney, a man was, um, a man died, I'm not allowed to say murdered, um, a man died after five uh, grotesquely ugly fat correctional services officers jumped on him to stop him from eating a biscuit. And then uh, they did not get any medical attention for him. Uh, in the latest case in Victoria, which is before the coroner now, in the case of Veronica Nelson, uh, she died over a period of day, days screaming for help, screaming for medical attention. She was completely ignored, and I challenge you to read the, the evidence. Um, and she was found dead in her cell, having received no medical attention. And that is the pattern uh, across a very large proportion of the deaths in custody cases. So I thought when I joined the Royal, Royal Commission that uh, there would be uh, some kind of reckoning with this problem, that uh, the recommendations would be implemented, that there'd be some kind of justice, and that we would tackle this problem and that there would be no more deaths in custody. Uh, I was wrong. Um, then later, uh, I was asked to join the Human Rights Commission inquiry into the forced removal of Aboriginal children. Uh, so I joined that inquiry as an assistant commissioner in the Northern Territory in 1996, I believe it was, and was asked to uh, assist uh, the local victims of these policies to make a submission 
uh, to the inquiry. Um, later, they did publish something, but during the course of the inquiry, they were too traumatised to, in my opinion, uh, to make that submission, and they refused any assistance, saying that only people who had been through the experience could actually uh, write such a submission. Um, and so they rejected all outside assistance. Uh, but I did go to a number of hearings uh, with the commissioners, the late Sir Ronald Wilson QC and uh, Mick Dodson. And uh, <coughs> there was evidence given by uh, people representing the institutions who uh, had taken in uh, these children who'd been forcibly removed. Um, <clears throat> and the end result was uh, a very fine report, bringing them home. Um, but the, <clears throat> the problem is, of course, that there was a paucity of first-hand evidence of the people who had been removed um, and, and their children because they are so traumatised and, uh, you know, I mean, I know of cases of, of children who were put into institutions or put into foster homes um, and uh, were tortured for years. Um, and so the cause... Oh, and, and raped. Um, so the causes of their trauma are many, and it is not simply being... Uttered, completely removed from their families, never to see them again. Um, along with the removals uh, was gross maltreatment and abuse of their rights, civil and human rights. Um, uh, instances of which are so repulsive that to this day I think many people cannot speak about it. One of the uh, formal findings of the inquiry was that... Uh, especially in relation to Western Australia, um, with A.O. Neville's instructions. Uh, he was the, well, let's call him the Native Affairs Superintendent. Uh, uh, that there was a finding of genocide under the Genocide Convention in relation to the cause that uh, <clears throat> spells out uh, an act of genocide includes um, efforts to eradicate a culture. And that was precisely what most of the uh, jurisdictions were trying to do. Um, <clears throat> but it, the evidence, the explicit evidence for that uh, was most clear in Western Australia. So I thought there'll be compensation for the victims. Uh, the inquiry is uh, uh, profoundly important. There's sufficient evidence to show um, periods of what happened in history. Much of it is documented. Um, and, you know, the, the gross fact of the forced removal of children as an abuse of human rights uh, had finally been acknowledged. Um, and I thought, well, this should bring some justice. And, um, of course, along with... The, the understanding of the Genocide Convention and also Crimes Against Humanity and much of the other human rights literature, it became clear that, along, that, that reparations should include 
an apology, compensation or reparations, and a commitment to never do it again. And I thought, well, that, that's great. Um, this should put an end to this foul practice. And there'll be just some kind of justice for the victims. I was wrong. There was an apology. However, the compensation is, uh, you know, it's a bit like that Spivs game where the, you know, the Spiv has three cups and he moves the cups around and asks you to guess and you never get it right. Uh, I think there have been maybe two or three out-of-court settlements and all those out-of-court settlements, while perhaps giving the <clears throat> victims some monetary compensation compensation for their uh, tribulations involve them um, having to sign a non-disclosure agreement so that they would never speak about what happened to them again. I don't regard that as justice. I regard that in itself as an abuse of justice. So I was completely wrong about the outcome of that inquiry. And uh, <clears throat> to this day, that side of politics uh, that got a kick up the arse last night continues to deny that this occurred. And if, as the journalists predict, Peter Dutton becomes the leader of the Liberal Party in Parliament, remember that he walked out of the apology. Yes. <laughs> then I observed from a distance the uh, Royal Commission into uh, the Dondale Juvenile uh, Detention Centre. And to cut a long story short, and I'm sure you'll remember, children in the Dondale Detention Centre had spit hoods on them. They were um, strapped to um, chairs with spit hoods on. Uh, they were uh, flogged and belted in the cells. Uh, they were sexually assaulted. They were abused. Um, and uh, to this day, uh, none of those recommendations of that Royal Commission have been implemented. In the Northern Territory, 100% of the children in the detention centres are Aboriginal. In the Banksia de uh, de detention centre over in Perth, uh, on any given day, uh, most of the time, 100% of the children in that detention centre will be Aboriginal. In fact, the removal and incarceration of Aboriginal children has reached a crisis point. And I'd go so far as to suggest that this is a new uh, type of genocide. So uh, <clears throat> now child protection services even go into hospitals and take babies out of their humidity cribs, um, removing them from their mothers. And in New South Wales, there's an act passed by Prue Goward as minister uh, to uh, ensure that uh, children who've been um, put into the um, notification system and substantiated and, and put into foster homes um, cannot ever uh, go back to their original families. So some colleagues and I 
wrote a letter to The Lancet about this abuse of human rights. Uh, and of course, nothing has happened. So <clears throat> I think we're up around one in four Aboriginal children are being removed. Um, and the statistics on juvenile detention are now far, far worse than they were when we looked at the problem during the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. So it was wrong to think that there might be some justice from the Dondale Royal Commission. I've worked since about 2011 on the idea of constitutional reform to recognise Indigenous Australians, to give Indigenous Australians a voice and a worthy place in the nation as the descendants of people who came here 65,000 years ago. Um, and last night you would have heard Anthony Albanese, the 31st Prime Minister of Australia, say that he is committed to the Uluru voice from the heart. Mm. Let me name the Prime Ministers who have rejected our substantial reports such as the expert panel, uh, the report of the expert panel on the uh, recognition of Indigenous Australians in the Constitution, and the uh, reports to about five or six inquiries. I forget how many inquiries there have been now. Um, so let's say seven or eight uh, substantial reports. So, uh, started out with Kevin Rudd, he did nothing. Then it was Julia Gillard, she did nothing. Uh, then it was uh, Tony Abbott, he did nothing. Then it was, uh, I think Bill Shorten, is that right? He did nothing. Where does Bill Shorten fit in? He didn't, <laughs> he didn't. that's right, he didn't. He did, I'll tell you what, he did turn up with Tony Abbott to tell us that our um, expert panel report was rejected. Um, so then there was, uh, yeah, Malcolm Turnbull, and he outright lied and said that what we were proposing was a, a third chamber of parliament, as did Barnaby Joyce. Um, so he said no as well. And uh, then Scott Morrison said no. You'll remember during the election campaign, he said, why would I? Um, and now we have Anthony Albanese demonstrably committing to it. Uh, but let me just point out a slight problem uh, that you will run into in this first term of uh, Albanese's parliament. In the Senate, there is uh, a black conservative by the name of Jacinta Price who is absolutely opposed to constitutional recognition, the voice, the Uluru statement from the heart. Um, in the Senate, there is a, a black green senator. Well, two, I think. Is, am I right about this? There's Lydia Thorpe and Dorinda Cox. And they were both returned last night, I believe. They are both also opposed to the Uluru statement from the heart. And uh, I think... Uh, Adam Bant was able to talk them down and say, well, you know, we can't just say no, that wouldn't look good. So apparently the Greens' position is now 
that we can have some truth-telling and then, you know, we can have a treaty and then we'll get to the Uluru Statement from the Heart. So, good luck with that. Um, and then I was wrong about governments promising year after year uh, to attend to the problem of the violence against women and children. And... Uh, <clears throat> I have to say that last night's election result relied heavily on three very clear demands from a section of the community that variously voted teal and green. Climate change, women's equality and integrity. Now I'm sure many Labor voters thought they were voting for those things as well. So let's put all those votes together. Women's equality. If there is, as I think the numbers show, an overwhelming desire on the part of Australians for action to stop the violence against women and children, uh, then uh, one would think that there'll be a pretty swift answer from this first Albanese um, parliament um, to address those problems. I hope I am not wrong about that. Thank you. Thank you, Marcia. Um, next up, we have Jane Caro, a Walkley Award-winning columnist, author, novelist, broadcaster, advertising writer, documentary maker, feminist, and social commentator. Jane appears frequently on Q&A, The Drum and Sunrise. She presents the popular podcast, Women with Clout, and is the author of the latest thrilling novel, The Mother. Please welcome Jane Caro. Uh, I just want to, before I start, want to say what an incredible speech by Marcia Langton about <laughs> the great wrong in um, Australia still and how um, wrong it is that so little has been done for so long. Let's hope... Marcia is right about this incoming government. I have nothing as serious to talk to you about this afternoon. Uh, tragically, when this came across my desk and I was, you know, would I be part of this session? And my habit, sometimes to my extreme detriment, is to say yes to everything. Um, I had at that time said yes to an even stupider thing, which was to stand for the Senate in this federal election. I'm not going to say I was wrong. It's the day after. My figures, as David Marr told me very brilliantly to, to express them as respectable, um, may give you a clue. Uh, as to why that might be just a little sore spot at the moment. Give me a few days, give me a few days. Um, but that's a tiny sore spot in comparison to the absolute delight 
with which I greeted last night's result. It could not be better. It was such a relief. But when this came across my desk, I was busy thinking about running for election. So I said yes, and then I didn't think about it again. So we are about to find out whether that was also wrong. <laughs> I was also wrong to have that last glass of wine at 2am last night. But the future looked so bright. I thought, why not? Now I know, why not? And I was wrong, but I was really wrong to give up hope at about eight o'clock last night. Was anyone else in that state at around that time last night? And it was, I was wrong to do it, but I did it. I was wrong with a kind of backstory. And I was wrong with a kind of backstory because I was wrong about Hillary Clinton. I am still scarred. Those of you who said I don't really like Hillary Clinton, <coughs> who cares whether you liked her? If she was in, Roe v. Wade would not be under threat. Those who said, I don't like Hillary Clinton, she's part of the establishment, blah, blah, blah. <sighs> you were wrong. And history says you were. Anyway, I was wrong about Hillary Clinton, and as you can tell, I have not yet recovered. I was wrong about Brexit. I didn't think the English were quite that stupid. <laughs> now, that was dumb of me. Clearly, they are that stupid and more because Brexit was followed by Boris Johnson and he's still there. We got rid of ours last night. Isn't that good? Oh, dear, we're better than the British. As always, as we always have been. I was wrong about Bill Shorten. I thought we were quids in, in 2019. I was ready to celebrate, and I had a bloody fucking miserable night that night. It was shit. And so, I thought I will learn the lessons of the past. And so last night, in fact, for the last few months, I have been thinking, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Don't get your hopes up. It's not going to happen. It never happens. You never win. You're always wrong. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Never is, never does. Like a sulky seven-year-old who doesn't like their Christmas presents year after year. But for once, I hoped I was wrong about Albo. And I was. <laughs> and it was the best wrong I've ever been. I wasn't wrong, however, about women being the people who won this election. And when I was out on the hustings handing out my how-to-votes, let's not go there, um, handing out my how-to-votes, what I saw all around me were women 
standing there, working in the pouring rain for days and days, wearing the T-shirts of the various candidates that they were supporting, most of whom were also women, most of whom were also independents, who were being scorned and sneered at by the mainstream media. If they did get a mention, it was at the, all about those irritating middle-class women who wear teal. I like teal. It's a tasteful colour. And there I saw these women working their fingers to the bone. Not all of them women, but most of them women. And they, they won. They did it. They worked hard for months and months and months doing the unremitting grind, the groundwork of an election campaign for candidates that only a few months ago most of us had never heard of. And here they are, taking blue ribbon seats from smug, self-satisfied, and I'm sorry, indulge me in this, private school educated boys. <laughs> I wasn't wrong about any of that. I remember the moment when I did get just a little bit hopeful. Then I squashed it, which was wrong, because actually, as it turned out, I could have allowed myself the pleasure of that hope. And that was when I read the polling, I think it was only a day or so ago, which said that Scott Morrison's ratings amongst women were the lowest they had ever seen since polling began. <laughs> Let me tell you, gentlemen, the women of Australia have much better taste in politicians and leaders than you guys. The men of Australia need to look at how they might be wrong. But I think, actually, it's really interesting to see so many women feeling so right just for a minute. Because one of the things I remember very clearly when I was a young woman was that I always felt wrong. I never found a way to make myself fit into the kind of shape that young women were meant to occupy and are still meant to occupy. I was always too much of almost everything. I was too mouthy. I was too emotional. I was too, I'm still this, so lots of people like to tell me, opinionated. <laughs> I have opinions about things. Lots of things. How very dare I? Many of them are no doubt wrong. But you don't know that, and nor do I, because those opinions are about things that are happening now, and we don't know how they're going to turn out. So why the fuck are my opinions opinionated and your opinions opinions? It took me decades, because I'm a very slow learner. But when I finally realised that there was no right way to be a woman in this society, that was an incredibly liberating experience, because I decided if I could never be right, well, then I had permission to be as wrong as I wanted to be in entirely my own way. And that has formed my career ever since. I, everything I do now is wrong. And I don't care. I don't give a flying fuck if it's wrong. When I was young, I tried so very hard to be right. 
I prepared, unlike this afternoon. I studied. I was worthy and diligent, like all those young women now sitting in their um, high schools and universities and working so hard to be brilliant at education, meaning that Australian women are the best educated people in the world because women outperform men and boys in education and always bloody have ever since we were allowed to go to school and university. So they're the best educated people in the world, number one in the OECD for educational participation and achievement working so hard, sweating their guts out, making themselves miserable to get ahead. And then when they find when they do get ahead, they don't get ahead because we're 70th, number 70.070 in the world for women's workplace participation and achievement. So what a waste of time. Young women, go to more parties, have more fun. <laughs> it's not gonna do you a damn bit of good. All that diligence never helped me. I'm much better off now that I'm a slack ass. I can tell you. I have much more fun. I went to a party last night, remember? Um, and uh, I'm going to be wrong anyway, so where's the loss in that? I can't see it. Uh, I was always beating myself up when I was young for every mistake, for every too passionately expressed point of view, for always taking up too much time in the conversation, too much psychic space, talking too much, thinking too much, caring too much. I was just so fucking wrong. And so I remain. And I am so fucking proud of it. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. You are doing much better than I am on a 2am finish. Uh, we are fast rounding on time, but um, I'm happy to say we have reached our last panellist, who has uh, very kindly put down writing a, a piece to come visit us today. Um, David Marr is a journalist and broadcaster who writes for The Guardian. He's the author of many books on politics, censorship, immigration and more. His most recent is My Country, an anthology of essays. Please welcome David Marr. Thank you. Think back to the playground. Wasn't one of the silliest kids in the playground the kid who would never, never admit a mistake. They were jokes. They were objects of laughter. They were bullied. They could never admit a mistake. And when I looked at Morrison year after year, absolutely refusing to admit mistake, I thought of those kids in the playground and thought and remembered what fools we thought they were because if you can't admit a mistake and you make mistakes, then what you, nothing you say can really be believed. And that, I believe, was Morrison's position by the end. Blah, 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 but what if it could be believed? Because he could never admit the most obvious, the most clear-cut mistake. And if, at times, he was edged towards some kind of admission of some sort of error, I've been a bulldozer. Within 24 hours, he's talking it back. Remember, I was a bulldozer. It was tremendous insight 
into the man. He could, he, could, he could see himself for what he was, not the ride-on mower that most of us um, imagined he might be, or the front-end loader that he was for factions other than his own in the Liberal Party, but a bulldozer. Yes, a bulldozer. But within 24 hours, he was reminding us that he had to be a bulldozer. So, no admission, whatever, of error. And in the end, I think that counted as much as his opposition to what Australians actually wanted to happen. The Morrison government was the last of a series of coalition governments that were determined on a kind of magnificent defiance of Australia's wishes. They did not want to do anything effective about the world burning. They did not want to do anything effective to protect women. They actively continued right to the very end, despite the fact that Morrison had almost no political capital left. He was still wanting to allow religious institutions to put the boot into gay and transgender kids. And there's no constituency for that in Australia. It's about, sorry, sorry, I exaggerate, of course. Look, I'm wrong. Um, the constituency for it is about 11 or 12%. The opposition to it is a very strong 75 to 80%. But Morrison was willing to do it as the last in a series of, of defiant prime ministers. And last night, he got his comeuppance. And last night, a system which has simply set out to defy the wishes of this country has come to a grinding halt. Now, whether Labor can do anything much about it, I don't know. But maybe, um, maybe they will be able to admit error when it happens. You see, what puzzles me, and I've been looking at politics in one way or another now for a little bit longer than I'm willing to admit up here, but roughly 50 years, and <laughs> I don't know where the advice comes from to say to these politicians, do what you, whatever on God's earth you can do not to admit that you're wrong. Where does that advice come from? Because it's bad advice. A frank admission of error is an impressive thing. Um, and yet, it seems so hard. We have a new task ahead of us as a nation. I was appalled by the jubilant hilarity that has been in this room today about the loss of that government. <laughs> Maybe we have a grace period of a week to 10 days before we need to take, before we need to take the communal task of getting stuck into the new government <laughs> and exposing its errors. And I'd like to start by asking, as a resident of Camperdown, I would like to ask Mr Albanese to cease so dramatically linking the name Camperdown with social housing. <laughs> now, <laughs> I'm grateful that there is social housing in Camperdown. God knows it hasn't been demolished. It was good enough when it was built still to be there. Redfern is about to be wiped out for the, for the benefit largely of the middle classes, but 
Camperdown had, has good social housing, but don't mention it so often, please, <laughs> Prime Minister. Um, because, you know, for, for we residents, we want to try and give a bit of tone to Camperdown. <laughs> for some time now, particularly since they started planting prunus trees in the streets, we've been thinking of Camperdown as the Taramurra of the Inner West. <laughs> All these unrecognisable suburbs. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that the party has started to call Bellevue Hill inner city? <laughs> inner city, that word that immediately means unstable political opinions, revamped slums, and a difficult kind of move on transitory community, inner city. Inner city fucking Bellevue Hill. <laughs> Inner city North Sydney, fuck me dead. <laughs> At least where I grew up, stayed firm. I mean, nothing is ever going to change the attitudes of Pimble. Um, but, <laughs> but surely an error, an error, ladies and gentlemen, to call, to call Bellevue Hill inner city. I have said how good it would have been for Morrison's career to admit error, and I know that that places me in a situation of being really obliged to admit some errors. Unfortunately, they don't have any kind of national dimension <laughs> of a kind that we have heard here from Marcia this afternoon, but nevertheless, mine mean a lot to me. When I was a young journalist working on the Bulletin, it was in 1974, there were some floods up north of the state, and I wrote a very moving piece, not having been there, of course, I wrote a very moving piece about the floods, and at one point I said that the water was knee-deep in the streets of Namoy. Now, I'm glad there is only a murmur of laughter here, because that means that nearly everybody in this audience, like me, thinks that Namoy might have been a town. It's in fact... It's in fact a river, and there are still colleagues of mine, I wouldn't call them friends, but colleagues who call me Namoy Dave. <laughs> Some errors are just appalling. Um, in 1980, I published a book about Garfield Bowie. The, the, the greatest political event of my lifetime was the sacking of Gough Whitlam. It showed how ruthless conservatives, conservatives can be in this country. It showed that they were absolutely willing to bet the house on getting back power, to bet the principal, um, uh, the principal uh, you know, architecture of democracy to get back in power. I was infuriated that Garfield Barwick didn't require a mounted police, as um, John Kerr required, in order to get to cocktail parties. Mind you, Barwick wasn't invited to many cocktail parties, and in those days, the Governor-General still was. We don't actually do anything with Governor-Generals now. You'll have, you'll, I don't think any of you can recall, because they were not made. The Governor-General has said nothing on behalf of the nation during the bushfires. He's said nothing on behalf of the nation during COVID. He has said nothing on behalf of the nation during the floods. We have silent governors general now 
because all of that ceremonial role has been taken over by prime ministers. That's John Howard. Anyway, I wrote a book about, about Barwick. And one of the interesting things about Barwick is that he and, he and the Ellicott family, and at that point Ellicott was Attorney General, he and the Ellicott family uh, are interrelated. I got the pattern wrong. There was the night of triumph for the launch of the book. Down in Canberra, um, at Anne Summers's house in Canberra, the place was stacked with happy politicians. There was, there was triumph in the air, there was triumph in me right down to the bones. And there was a phone call. And said, Dave, you'd better take the phone. And it was somebody pointing out that I had got the map of the interaction of the Barwicks and Ellicotts completely wrong. <laughs> oh, God, it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. Anyway, the book sold, and in the second edition, we were able to fix it. Um, and the first printing of any book is a, you know, is a, a, a sort of a work in progress. And <laughs> Things to be fixed, always. <laughs> and then years later, 20 or 30, 30 years later, my publishers, as a, as a gift to me, really, um, republished the Barwick book using the first printing. <laughs> so as many of you do, going into a bookshop today to buy David Marr's biography of Barwick, <laughs> I have to warn you that the details about the Ellicotts are wrong. <laughs> They are still wrong. <laughs> I am a man with a minute 46 left at his disposal. So I'm just going to say this. We are all of us wrong a lot of the time. And changing our minds is one of the most important things we do in our lives. We have friends to help us change our minds. We read and we study and sometimes and, and we can change our minds. The refusal to change our minds, like the refusal to admit error, is a kind of death. And I hope that this country now has got a new lease of life. Please keep the round of applause going. Paul McDermott, Marcia Langton, Jane Caro, David Ma. Thank you so much for being here, everybody. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.